Acts 23. Let's pray here. We've got a lot to cover this morning. Lord, just be with us. You teach, we listen, let your spirit guide and direct, and help us to live it, not just talk about it, but to live it. In your name, amen. All right, we've been going through Acts here. Um, from about Acts 20 on, you've heard me mention this. This is one ongoing theme, one ongoing story here in the book of Acts prophesied over Paul that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be arrested, and that's exactly what happened in Acts 22. He went to Jerusalem, and he was arrested. Now, instead of looking at this as a woe is me, this is a fulfillment of what God wanted to do. Because way back in Acts chapter 9, when Paul got saved, God said, I will use you to be a light and a witness to kings and kingdoms, to rulers and leaders, and this is what's going on. Paul has an opportunity to represent the gospel to the citizenship of Acts 22. Now, they reject him, and they want to kill him. He's taken now to the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish authorities in Acts 23. He represents the gospel to them. They want to kill him as well. He is now going to be moved on to the Roman authorities, Governor Felix. And this starts a span of a couple years of Paul just working his way up, probably all the way to Caesar, a fulfillment of prophecy given 20, 25 years earlier in Acts chapter 9. Now, this would bother you and I. But one of the key passages come from Acts 20 where Paul stops and says, it's not my life. I've already died to this life, and so therefore I am the Lord's. And if this is how the Lord wants to use me, let the Lord use me. That great idea of I can only live once I die. Once I truly stop and say, Lord, it's not about me. It's all about you. That's when the Lord says, I can really start to use you. I was going through some old notes from a pastor's conference recently, and there was a little phrase in there that I wrote down 10 years ago. And it says this, that when you get saved, you become a nickel in God's pocket that he can spend any way he wants. And when you really stop and think about it, when we get saved and we stop and say, Lord, I have given everything over to you, what does that really look like? So often in Christianity, we give God a lot. What about everything? Every aspect where I realize every breath is from him. You lead me. You guide me. You direct me. God, you are sovereign. And that's the word we're really going to focus on this morning in Acts 23, the idea of the sovereignty of God. God is in complete, utter control. Now, that bothers some people because when they look around the world and they look at events in their life and they say, if God is in complete control, why did this happen? Let's say a couple things about this. First off, quit asking the why questions. Why questions will not get you where you need to go. You can ask where, what, when, and who, but why? We're going to talk about that one a little bit. Where? Let's talk about where your neighbor is going to go. Let's talk about where you're going to go for all of eternity. Let's talk about what. What has God called for you for your life? What is his calling and purpose? Let's talk about who. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Let's talk about when. When are you going to meet your maker? Are you prepared for that? Are you ready? But why? That one we need to put on the back shelf for a little bit because we trust the sovereignty of God, which we'll build here. The other idea of the sovereignty of God is it creates sometimes um, a frustration. If God is in complete control, then why is he doing this? And we start wondering if God is in complete control. Let me ask you this. Do you want to serve a God that's not in complete control? That's part of the sovereignty of God. We have to trust that he's in complete control. kind of reminds me a little bit when the subject of predestination comes up. Some people get really bothered about that idea that God knows who's going to heaven, God knows who's going to hell, and they really struggle with predestination. I always think, do you want to serve a God that doesn't know where you're going to spend eternity? So you die and you stand before him in heaven, he's like, I'm really surprised you made it. I never thought you would. He's God. He knows. 
That's the authority of God. That's the omnipotence, all-powerful, omniscience, all-knowingness of God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is the sovereignty of God. And we're going to use Acts 23 in our study through Acts. Because what happens is this, verse 12. And when it was day... Some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we'll eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Boy, that's passionate. Verse 12. Will neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. That's a lot of zeal. You guys ever tried fasting before? It sounds really good on paper. I'm just going to uh, skip this meal, skip this lunch, skip this breakfast, spend that time with the Lord in prayer. And then when it happens, there's a literal physical hunger that sometimes is uncomfortable because we are designed to want to eat. And fasting is a time where I let go of the physical to focus on the spiritual. It's a great step in your walk with the Lord, and I highly encourage you to do it. Here's a group of people that said, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. That's passion. That's zeal. But you have to remember what Paul said about this, not this specific situation, but this idea in Romans 10. He talks about zeal without knowledge. There's a whole lot of religions out there that are passionate. They're zealous. And they will do some passionate, zealous thing in the name of their God. And they have no knowledge of the true Savior of Jesus Christ. So we look at this passion, we look at this zeal, and we say, wow, wow, these guys aren't going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. That is zeal without knowledge. I was talking one time to this person that's of a different religion, and they were fasting. And they were talking about how they were fasting that day, and we just started having the conversation of just fasting. You know, we as Christians fast. They and their religion fast. And as we're talking about it, I realize when I fast, I'm fasting for a purpose. I want to know you deeper, Lord. I want to spend this time in wisdom and prayer seeking you out. And I'm going to let go of the physical and focus on the spiritual. And I'm blessed by that. Then I looked at this person who was fasting and I realized they get nothing out of it except hunger. There's no relationship with their God. They're not going to understand truth better through their false religion. They're not going to understand their God better through their false religion. It is zeal. It is passion without knowledge. So these guys are passionate, and they're completely, utterly wrong. That's a dangerous place to be. And the thing is, it still happens in Christianity. We did a men's study years ago, and there was this phrase about bubbling brooks. And bubbling brooks, if you've ever been around a bubbling brook, they are. They're very noisy. They're very beautiful. They're very loud. And the water is very shallow, but it's very scenic. It's, it's wonderful. I love sitting by the bubbling brook and just hearing that noise but there's no depth to the water. And then you go stand by the mighty Mississippi, and in some ways the mighty Mississippi seems quieter than the bubbling brook. Because the next point in the book is still waters run deep. Sometimes there's people that claim to be a Christian or are a Christian, and their faith is so shallow, but you would never know it because they're constantly bubbling. They have the zeal. They have the passion. Where's the depth? Where's the knowledge? And I tell you, one of the things that's really just not a whole lot of, I guess, for lack of a better word, fun to preach about is the depth of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's fun to talk about bubbling. It's fun to talk about shallow things. But what we really want is for you guys to walk out of this building knowing Jesus Christ deeper and more personally. And to understand that and realize still waters run deep. 
And what I see here with the sovereignty of God is I see a lot of passion. I see a lot of zeal. You may even have false religions that show up at your door. And they are passionate. They are zealous, but they're passionately and zealously wrong. What we need is the knowledge of Jesus Christ with the passion for Jesus Christ. When you have the wisdom of God in your life and then you have the passion for God in your life, that is a crazy combination that changes eternity for people. And that's what we're looking for. Not just the book smarts without the passion. Not just the passion without the knowledge. But that beautiful combination coming together where you realize eternity can be changed through the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit and through the knowledge of God's word. That's what we want. These guys here had the passion without the knowledge. And I wonder who was the first guy to break. I don't think they really died of starvation and hunger. Who's the first guy that said, listen, guys, we can't kill Paul. Who wants a hamburger? I don't know. But one of them gave in at one time. So what happens? Verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son, Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is that that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have been bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Here's that fulfilled prophecy again. Paul, you've spoken to the Jewish people. You've spoken to the Jewish leadership, and now you're moving on to the Roman governor. This is God's sovereign plan to see the gospel go forth. And not even that... Look how Paul gets to travel. An armed escort, verse 23, of 470 men. 470 Roman soldiers are going to personally escort him to make sure that he gets there safely. And not only that, verse 24, the prisoner gets to ride a horse. That's crazy. That's just what the Lord does. God says, in my sovereignty, Paul, I have promised you, because go back to verse 11 of the same chapter, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. There is no way Paul was going to die on the way to Rome, the sovereignty of God. 470 soldiers are used by God to keep him safe. And then a horse carried the prisoner while the Roman soldiers walked. That's what the Lord does. Verse 25, now Claudius Lysias, he wrote a letter in the following manner. This is the Roman commander. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix. So the Roman commander is writing to the Roman governor saying this is what happened. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. He's just going to conveniently forget about trying to scourge him. But we'll talk about that later. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but he had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. When it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So Claudius Lysias basically washes his hands, says, Felix, he's in your hands now. You're the Roman governor. I got him to you safely. Please remember Roman rule and law. If Paul would have been killed under Claudius Lysias' command... 
Claudia Lysus probably would have been put to death himself because it was considered his responsibility to keep this man safe. That's why there's 470 soldiers. That's why there's all this protection. God used it. God is sovereign. But at the same time, this man is making sure he is protected and his prisoner does not die. Verse 31, Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. If you would look at a map, they traveled at night. That way there would be no danger of people. This is also a very hilly, mountainous region. There are a lot of places for ambush. Once they get past Antipatris, on the way to Caesarea, it's more of a plain. They don't need as many people. Verse 33, when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and we understood that he was from Cilicia. He said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. That's Herod's... uh, headquarters, if you will. And this sets up Paul now to spread the gospel to the Romans. So he did it with the Jews, Jewish people. He did it with the Jewish leaders. And guess what? Now he gets to do with the Romans. While in chains, being used by God, because God is sovereign, prophesied 20, 25 years ago, this is what would happen in the beautiful sovereignty of God. Now we need to talk. Paul is miraculously saved. Paul and Silas were miraculously saved in prison. 470 Roman soldiers are watching out for him. But yet Stephen is martyred. Peter is miraculously saved from prison. But yet John the Baptist is beheaded. So if God is sovereign, the same God that sovereignly protected Paul now twice, let Stephen die. The same God that sovereignly protected Peter to bring him out of prison, allowed John the Baptist to be beheaded. The same God that heals cancer also sometimes says no to healing of cancer. The same sovereign God that got Dawn and I safely to and from Mexico, 4,400 miles with not a single issue in our van, I get a flat tire in my driveway. (laughs) True story. That's the same sovereign God. Why does Paul get saved? Stephen didn't. In fact, according to Acts, Paul was at Stephen's death. Okay, why did Peter get saved? John the Baptist, the greatest human being ever born, according to Jesus, put that on your resume, gets beheaded. This sovereignty of God sometimes is difficult to grasp and understand. Go with me to Romans 11, please. Romans 11. Let's talk about this. For us to fully understand the God you serve that is sovereign and the authority, let's get a foundation first of some scriptures. Romans 11, verse 33. Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Let's hit that one more time. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You're not going to fully ever understand why. That's why I'm telling you to let go of why. You can know where, you can know what, you can know who, and you can know when. You can know where you're going to go. You can know what God's calling is for your life. You can know who Jesus Christ is. And you can know when you die that you will be with God forever and eternity. God has never promised you why. And we spend all of our time and energy trying to figure out why. So when you put all your time and energy into why, you forget who, what, where, and when. And those are the questions you really need to focus on. 
Because if God tells you right here in verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, do you think with your created finite mind, you're going to understand the unsearchable infinity of God? Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Have you guys ever tried to give advice to God? Have you ever caught yourself praying that? Oh, Lord, you really need to. Have you ever done that? Lord, I really think, Lord, you really, be careful with that. I'm going to counsel God. I'm going to give advice to God. Verse 35, who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Verse 36, Colossian also says, he is before all things and in him all things consist. He is everything. So verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You don't need to turn there, but another passage that deals with this is Isaiah. It's Isaiah 55. And this verse really rings home for for me with a lot of situations. In Isaiah 55, it's just so eloquently put how the Lord moves and works. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God says, my thoughts and my ways are so far above you, you'll never fully understand and grasp it. He's saying, can you trust me? You know, before Dawn and I had kids, some of you remember that have been coming out here for a while. You know, this is now jumping back 15 years ago. Um, we had a hard time trying to have children for a while. We had a lot of miscarriages, and it just did not go real well, and it was a really difficult, dark time. And I can remember one time after Dawn having another miscarriage, us going into the doctor and talking to the doctor and, and the midwife, etc. And as we were leaving, Dawn was ahead of me, and she kind of walked out first, and the midwife grabbed me. And she looked at me, and she goes, you, you know your wife's depressed, right? And I remember thinking, well, of course she's depressed, She wants to have children. She's not able to have children. This is what she wants. She is not getting what she wants. That's depressing. That's what it is. And as she just said, she needs help. And I remember going home that day and walked into the living room, and we were in the living room. It was completely dark, and Dawn was just sitting on the couch. She just kind of had her head down. And I remember going over and sitting beside her, and I said something about, um, you know, talk to me. What's going on? And I remember her saying, I'm angry. I remember her saying that. I'm angry. And I said, are you angry at God? And I will never forget this because it showed the depth of my wife's faith. She stopped and she said, why would I be angry at God? And I thought, that is so, why would I be angry at God? She goes, I'm angry at the situation. She goes, but I'm not angry at God. And we had those big Bibles. I, I think it's customary. You have to give those big Bibles when you get married. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like it takes three people to turn one page. <laughs> So we had one of those big Bibles, and it was in our living room, and Dawn would always have a verse turned to it of a certain thing, and she always kept it during that dark season at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. That my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts and your thoughts. We have to trust the sovereignty of God, even when it doesn't make sense. We'll get to that in a little bit. What happens when we don't trust the sovereignty of God? What are we really saying? Now, I'm going to not talk to you. I'm going to talk about myself so that way you guys can't get angry at me. When I don't trust the sovereignty of God, I'm really just saying I'm completely selfish. What I'm really just saying is I'm a spiritual three-year-old that I didn't get what I want, how I wanted it, when I wanted it. So, God, I'm going to throw a little spiritual hissy fit. Because even though you're God 
and you're sovereign and you're powerful. You didn't heal the way I wanted you to heal, so I'm really angry at you. You didn't provide the way I wanted you to provide, so I'm angry at you. I didn't get the person I wanted. I didn't get the kids I wanted. I didn't get the job I wanted. I didn't get the life I wanted. And so, God, I'm really angry at you. And I'm going to sit here and claim to be a Christian with words, but my lifestyle is going to be a whiny little three-year-old. That's not trusting the sovereignty of God. That's being completely, utterly spiritually selfish. If we truly trust that God is sovereign and we trust his authority, that he can miraculously make the information come to Paul to save him, but yet Stephen be martyred and he can free Peter from prison, yet John the Baptist be beheaded, we trust that when he's moving and working in my life, something deeper is going on that I do not see. And any time I spend my energy asking why, I'm really forgetting where, what, who, and when. Because we just determined... We will not know why. If you go study the book of Job, Job is asking one question throughout the book of Job. Why? And that question is never answered. We get the full story because we have Job 1 and 2. We have the end of Job. Job didn't have that. So much energy is spent asking why. So here's the problem. If God is so sovereign and so powerful and so amazing, why... Does it not turn out for good? Now we have to say two things on this. First thing, you have to change your definition of good. God's definition of good is better than your definition of good. And what happens is when we really get upset and we think God's not working good, it's really it's not our definition of good. God, this is what's good for me. Please do it. God says, I know better. Can you trust God's definition of good in your life more than you trust your definition of good? How many times do we do this, folks? Changing jobs, changing houses, changing spouses, changing whatever. And we stop and say, this sure looks better for me on paper, so therefore I will do it. This is good. And God says, but I know the ultimate good for you, and that is not good. Will you trust his sovereignty? See, because God is good. Real quick, let's just go through the verses. Psalm 119.68. Psalm 119, 68, great simple verse. The Lord is good and does good. How simple is that? The Lord is good and does good. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but plans to bring you peace. Do you trust that? Or Romans 8, 28, that in all things God works for the good of those that love him that are called according to his purposes. Now, that promise is given to believers. A lot of times I talk to non-believers, and they talk about how their life is falling apart. God is still good. But I can't say that they're working good in their lives because that promise is to believers. If you're here today, and you have confessed Christ as your Savior, and you're saved, that means whatever happens in your life, God's going to use it for good. He will. He promised that. He is a good father, according to the Gospels, that wants to give gifts to his children. That's what he said. If you're here this morning and you're not saved and you're wondering why your life is a mess, it may be a mess because of choices you made. Can God still work in that mess? You bet he can. But free will sometimes takes us out of the perfect will of God. And we have to trust the goodness of the Lord that he is moving and working. We need to pick up the pace here a little bit because I want to make sure we've got time for communion. Can you go with me to Hebrews 11, please? Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith. This is a great chapter of the heroes of the Bible and how God used them and worked miraculously. Hebrews 11, verse 30. Hebrews 11, verse 30. 
By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. We're going through Joshua on Wednesday nights. Amen. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Amen. That's the God you serve. He stops the mouths of lions. He takes cowards and turns them into heroes. He can take down giants with stones. He can raise the dead. That's the sovereign God you serve. But read the rest. Verse 35. Women received their dead raised life again. Others were tortured. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, just of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They were murdered, about, excuse me, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. That's the same sovereign God that in verse 35 allowed people to be tortured. The same sovereign God that allowed people in verse 36 to be scourged and imprisoned and stoned. Verse 37, sawn in two. So when that individual was being sawn in two, the sovereign God allowed that and said, for the glory of me. We have to trust that. We have to trust that God will miraculously bring the nephew to get Paul out of prison. We have to trust that God will miraculously give the strength to Stephen when he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's being stoned to death. We have to miraculously trust the same God will open the gates of prison to let Peter out. And we have to trust the same sovereign God that when John the Baptist was beheaded, that he was still there. I don't know where you're at today. It is easy to trust the sovereign God when you're the widow with your dead raised to life. It's easy to trust the sovereign God when you come back from the doctor and they say, it's a miracle, it's gone. But can you still trust the same sovereign God when the dead are not raised to life and when the diagnosis does not change? Because he's still the same. He still does good and he is good. He still works good in your life. And you have to trust that he's moving and working behind the scenes even when we don't see it. Even when we don't see it. How are we supposed to respond to this? Go with me to Romans 12, please. Worship team, if you want to come forward here for communion. Romans 11, I want to remind us of where we started with this. Romans 11. Please remember verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The unsearchableness of God, we trust that. Verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Please remember chapter breaks and verses were not in the Bible initially. We put those in later for convenience to be able to find things. So we go from this concept of the unsearchableness of God and how amazing it is. And then he immediately goes into verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God is unsearchable. His ways are past finding out. So the only natural reaction to this, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, is for me to say, I no longer exist, Lord, and I am just yours. 
because I know nothing. James 4 says, I'm a morning fog that appears and disappears. Who am I to plan anything? The only natural reaction is for me to give my life so completely, utterly over to him that I stop and say, I'm a living sacrifice, Lord, to serve an authoritative, sovereign God who is good, even when it doesn't make sense. I encourage you as you get ready to start communion, you can bring them in, Bob. How much time and energy do we spend on why? Focus more on who. Who is Jesus? Where? Where are you going? Where is your neighbor going for all of eternity? When? When you face death, what will it be like? And what? What is God's calling for your life? As we bring the older kids in here for communion, I just want to remind you, we have an open communion policy at Harvest, meaning we don't have church membership. So we ask the kids to come in, and they can sit with you parents, and parents, you can decide if a child is old enough to grasp and understand communion. Now, before we do communion, we always like to do two things. First one is make sure that it's understood what communion is. Communion is symbolic of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. As you get ready to partake of this cracker, it represents the body, the body of Christ that took the punishment of your sins and my sins. And this cup represents the blood of Christ that is representative of God's blood, the only currency accepted in heaven for the payment of sins. We believe it's important that that is clear and understood, so therefore you know what you're partaking of. Because as a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're saved, what a symbolic act this is to truly understand. I know a pastor said, this is the closest we get to the foot of the cross, to fully understand what Jesus went through. And we believe it's also important to give you an opportunity of of prayer, an opportunity of confession. Because it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, it says, for uh, those who eat and drink in an unworthy manner, eat and drink judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There should be a time of self-examination before we partake of communion. Psalm 139 says, search me and try me, O Lord. See if there's any iniquity in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That there's a time where we stop and say, Lord, you know my heart. And according to Jeremiah, my heart is deceitfully wicked. You know what I'm hiding in the back of my spiritual house in those closets. Now's the time to bring it out. And I encourage you as we get ready to go into communion, let's have a time real quick of just quiet prayer where we stop and say, Lord, examine me. Search me. Where do I need to grow in you? What do I need to repent of, confess of, forsake, rebuke? Because I want to be everything you got for me, Lord. I want to be that living sacrifice that said, Lord, it's all yours. Let's pray. Lord, as we get ready to partake of communion, I pray that you would just lead and guide right now. Let your spirit speak to us. Examine us. Search us. Try us. You know us. Bring to light those things that we need to change and work on in you. Lord, help us to confess, repent, rebuke all those sins that are bringing us down. And Lord, just to come to you and whatever fears, worries, anxieties we have, we lay them at your feet and we trust you are a sovereign, good God. And we give this to you now and I encourage you just to go to him individually. Lord, at this time, it's easy to feel overwhelmed by just our sin. But Lord, your grace is so amazing. Thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. And as we get ready to partake of communion, we give you the glory in your name. Amen. Guys.